0: What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, to celebrate the 100th episode of the Rewatchables podcast, Quentin Tarantino returns for the third and final movie in his three-part series with us. In the final episode, Bill Simmons and Sean Fennessy discuss with Quentin one of his favorite movies, the 1990 crime thriller King of New York. Make sure to check out this special episode and follow at the Rewatchables on Twitter for highlights of all 100 episodes my taste buds my culinary comrades my hungry homies we've done it we're back 2020 is off to a delicious start here on house of carbs the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people i am your hungry host Joe House here on the Ringer Podcast Network. My culinary comrades, this is a true treat for all of us. It was a true treat for me. The legendary, visionary restaurateur, Danny Meyer. You may know him from his New York City icons, Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe. He also happened to found a little burger joint called Shake Shack. He is an incredible restaurateur, an incredible visionary here in Washington, D.C. to kick off the opening of his Roman Trattoria, Maiolino Mare. Very excited. Let's get in that belly with Danny Meyer. Uh, My culinary comrades, we are incredibly honored to have here in the nation's capital, one of the true visionaries in the restaurant industry, a titan of the taste buds. He is a genuine OG, a, a, a godfather, if you will, in the restaurant game, Danny Meyer, Welcome to Washington, D.C. Hey, thank you, Joe. My my pleasure. So literally my pleasure. I want to begin with a hearty thank you, because you and your team have enriched my life so much over the last 15 to 20 years. The first Shake Shack uh, was a hot dog cart in Madison Square Park in 2000. I'm not sure when I discovered Shake Shack, when I was led, I was fortunate enough to be getting up to New York with some frequency. And it was pretty, in the early 2000s, I was led to the Shake Shack experience. And it's been an integral uh, part of my life experience ever since. So so thank you for that.
1: Well, I'm honored to hear that. And, and you're, a, you're actually a great proof that Shake Shack is one of the most healthy things you can eat, because I've never seen you look better. <laughs> oh, that's
0: fair. Look how good. We're starting off with compliments. I love it. This is truly enlightened hospitality. We're going to get to that. Um, but before we get there... What is your go-to Shake Shack order, if I may? Do you have a go-to, or Uh, I I absolutely do
1: have a go-to order, and and it's for a good reason. Um, a, it's delicious, but B, I like to taste for consistency, and I taste all over the world. I was just in Mexico, Mexico City, last week, and had Shake Shack there. I've been in Detroit and had it. I've been in Japan and had it. South Korea, Russia, believe it or not, and I'm tasting to see if the food delivers consistently well everywhere. So, how do I do that? Cheeseburger, fries and a coffee milkshake. That's it. Why? The shack burger is amazing, the smoke stack is amazing. But all of those burgers are topped with sauces and things whether it's bacon or hot peppers or right whatever. Yes. That mask the actual Quality of the beef, and I want to know how does the beef taste on its own. And believe it or not, it can be different, especially when you go internationally. It can be different because we use different beef. For example, in Great Britain, we are required to use uh, beef that is from Great Britain. So we use grass-fed beef from Scotland, and that tastes very different than corn-finished beef from Kansas. There's just no question about it. Sure. So we're, we're just all, or, or you might find that the cheese is different in Japan, uh, where they have different laws than it, than it is even in South Korea. So I like that order. I also think that, um, the French fries for something that you would think is the simplest thing on earth, cooking them exactly the right way with exactly the right seasoning and, and serving them at exactly the right temperature is a little bit more challenging than you would think. So I want to test that. And then the last part, the coffee milkshake, mm-hmm. that's just my hedonism. Yes. Um, it's the best coffee milkshake I've ever had in my life. And there is not a better flavor combination on earth. And I'm i am even including things like sauterne and foie gras. <laughs> the best combination on earth is Shake Shack French fries with Shake Shack's coffee milkshake. Oh, wow. I don't know why that is. But I, it, well. It will send you, next time you go there, try it. Okay, today I will go
0: there. Now I have to get. You away don't from- have to
1: dip, by the way. Just chase chase a fry yeah, with right. a sip of shake. The
0: crunch, the heat, the salt. It's the
1: salt, the sugar, but it's also the potato and coffee thing. Mm. And I I do not know why, but it's amazing.
0: Oh God, what a what a great start to this this discussion. Today. But
1: then it's think about probably. it just for a second. When was the last time you went to a, a diner and had hash browns for breakfast? You were eating potatoes and coffee. Absolutely. This is just better.
0: Yes, you're you're, you're right. Um, the uh, Occasion of your visit here in Washington, very happy to be able to sit right across the table from you for this, Um, you are opening uh, for the first time ever – uh and and this is the Union Square Hospitality Group um you as the, the the face of it if 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 you will um the f- they they could have done a lot better that's why I do have a good face for podcasts that's for sure <laughs> so this is the first time ever that Union Square Hospitality Group has um opened a full service restaurant somewhere other than New York City so uh thank you for choosing Washington we're we're very excited um what what took you so long as is my quest. Here's here's what took us so long,
1: Joe. We we have, as you can imagine, had opportunities left and right, license opportunities, and Vegas and Europe. Actually, when Union Square Cafe had to close after 30 years, uh, during that year where we were looking for a new site, which happily we found right near Union Square in New York City, we were getting offers all over the country and globe. Please put a Union Square Cafe here, and I just always felt that. As opposed to a Shake Shack, which, as you know, doesn't have a maitre d' and doesn't have, you know, your favorite table, and we don't have to remember your birthday, and you know, a lot of the things that go with being a full service fine dining restaurant. I never wanted to to have a restaurant that felt like we were just phoning it in, because I think hospitality is is really the name of our game, and so doing something outside of the five block radius. Of Union Square was a big deal for years. We finally opened at the Museum of Modern Art. That kind of was a new thing for us um, 15 years ago. But Washington, D.C. is a town that um, made a lot of sense for a whole host of reasons. First of all, the food scene here is a bona fide, you know, just great place to eat. It's, But it's also a, a city because of so many dynamic chefs here. And that's not something I would have said 15 years ago. Right. Um, but because there are so many really, really fine restaurants here, it actually encourages us to, to do our best work. You know from the world of sports that teams, no matter how good they are, if you're playing a really good team, it's going to raise your game. Mm. And that's what we want to do. We also like the idea that this is a city that is so close to New York and so easy to get to that we could – on one hand, have a number of really good folks from our team move down here, and and really plant their lives here. Sure. And for those of us who are not going to move here full time, it's really easy to get back and forth. Right. So, so this made a lot of sense to
0: us. So the restaurant is uh, kind of a seafood version of, uh, um, uh, in terms of of the cuisine rome focused trattoria right yeah is that what am i getting it right? yeah
1: so about a little bit over 10 years ago we opened a restaurant in new york city called maialino and Maelino, it's it's an interesting story um is in the gramercy park hotel gramercy park hotel is a storied hotel it was kind of a seedy place that rock and roll bands used to stay in the kind of bands that would destroy the rooms and you know make a lot of mischief back in the old days and probably about uh, 12 years ago or so, Ian Schrager, who famous for Studio 54, along with his partner, took over the hotel, renovated it completely, and asked us if we would do a restaurant on the ground floor on one side of the hotel. The other side was going to be his, his bar. Right. And Ian's quite a visionary, but it occurred to me that we are two peas from di- very different pods. You know, I moved to New York back when he had studio 54 here and studio 54 was famous for how exclusive it was, Mm -hmm. the red velvet rope. If you're not good enough, you're not getting in. And I think if, if we're famous for anything, it's about being inclusive. It's Mm -hmm. about, we want to take care of you no matter who you are. And so it, 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 it just wasn't something that occurred to me. So they brought in a, a kind of chic Chinese restaurant idea in, in the Gramercy park hotel and after about 13 months or so, it went out of business. And so Ian came calling again, and uh, the rest, the, the, the hotel needed a restaurant. There was nothing there. And here it is overlooking New York's beautiful Gramercy Park. Yes. And I was really, really tempted. So we decided, let's come up with an idea that has been brewing inside of me forever, right? right? And that was to do a Roman trattoria. Um, I had cooked in Rome when I was younger, early part of my career. I was a tour guide in Rome. I was a student in Rome. In fact, my nickname started off as being Maiarino, Little Meyer. And uh, without my knowing it, because uh, Roman friends of mine noticed that I kept eating suckling pig at all the trattorias, they had actually changed my name to Maialino, And I didn't understand why they kept laughing. They were Instead of being Little Meyer, I was all of a sudden Little Pig. <laughs> uh, I wasn't laughing, but I'm glad you are. What? And and so it, it
0: seems kind of flattering. Is it not flattering now? Looking back, all these you know, these years?
1: Jewish guy from St. Louis being <laughs> called Little Pig because he eats so much pork. Okay, I don't know. Okay, it's, okay, you know, I get it. On the other hand, we did open a barbecue restaurant called Blue Smoke. So I guess I I, I, I know Blue Smoke earned the moniker here, <laughs> but uh, it it just felt like a fun thing to name the restaurant and to really celebrate Roman. What's great about Roman food is that it's not about Reinvention. Mm. It's about taking food you know and trying to do it better than you knew it could be. Okay. So if you go to a trattoria in Rome, 80% of the menu items are exactly the same at every restaurant. That's not how you find things in Washington, D.C. Right. You know, people are trying to yes. make a mark by doing something that you've never heard of before. So anyway, we've had a great experience with Mylina. It was born in a hotel. And when the Thompson Hotel... Uh, approach us about opening in in the yards right which we've gotten to know well from having shake shack um at, at the at, ballpark. At national ballpark yes for um, almost a decade i guess at this still
0: point. the most intense lines you know there so you have to work out a whole system a whole hack to to skip that line well, i have my ways the,
1: the best way is the best way is to not worry about it and so <laughs> you know go there when the gnats are either way ahead or you're not going to worry about missing something. Back when we started, the Nats were more often down by a bunch of runs, right? But anyway, so the
0: hamburger was the star. Of anyway, the show. so
1: Myalino Mare is is taking a restaurant that we know and love yes. that knows how to serve a great breakfast. The the breakfast at Myalino in New York City has become a destination for for movers and shakers, and we hope we hope that uh, Washington's movers and shakers who make laws and stuff like that are going to want to come there. But we'll do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And yeah, it's going to be much more focused on seafood. So we've got, you know, fantastic pasta dishes with seafood. One of the best swordfishes I've ever had in my life. If you've ever had veal Milanese, what do they do? They take wheelhouse. They take the big veal chop and pound the crap out of it. Oh yes. Well. Guess what we're doing? We're just doing skate wing milanese. Oh. It's already flat. It comes flat. We don't have <laughs> that's, to pound it.
0: It's a great point with
1: the same kind of salad on top and lemon that you would get with with veal milanese. So, so scallops a la salting boca. Whoever wrote the rule that salting boca only works with veal, so it's it's going to be a really really exciting place, and and we're. Proud to, to join this great culinary community.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's kind of you to say. Um, I will say I, I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you found your way into the industry because I think it informs a lot of how we're sitting here today. But I want to make a point while we're talking about Maelino. Um I was struck when I saw the materials um, by the team, the, the, the team that you've assembled to, to work at this restaurant kind of jumped off the page for a few reasons. So there's, there's enormous diversity in terms of gender, diversity in terms of um, backgrounds, diversity in terms of experiences um, in the industry, uh, both uh, cooking-wise and um, management-wise. And I'm interested in, because I think this will help you know, set the stage for going backwards the way that I want to, how do you do this? Like how do you get this kind of team pulled together? Cuz you're already to me when I look at this, this is a stamp of approval. There's a whole bunch of interesting food pathways here that are embodied in your people that I can't wait to go eat. Hmm. So, you know, how are you how do you come up with the approach when you're building a team like this, your first offsite venue? You know, that's it's a great question.
1: If I think about the arc of my own career, if there's one thing that I think I've gotten better at, it's assembling teams. Mm. And, you know, this goes back to being a kid growing up in St. Louis and couldn't wait to get my homework and my piano practicing done so I could go out and play touch football or, or softball or street hockey or whatever mm. the neighborhood was doing on that day. Yeah. And I couldn't wait to, I was one of the, you know, everybody would say, who wants to be a captain? And I always wanted to be a captain. And the biggest reason I wanted to be a captain. Was because you get to pick your team and i think that if you don't get better at that over time then you're probably not going to be a better captain if you look at all the dynasties in sports or business it's all about who picked the better team and i think that uh while you're right you're absolutely right that the the team of people that uh that we've assembled is diverse. It's, it's actually not that diverse cause everyone's a woman, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, Rose Noel, who's our chef, who started making pasta at Maialino in New York. And then yes. she rose to being our number two, um, executive sous chef at Manhattan in New York. And she wanted to, she wanted to move here and she, cool. she's her grandmother's from Haiti. Uh-huh. Um, that's, that's a diverse background for right. you. Here's what's, here's what they all have in common. 100% of the people who are running Myelino Mari are doing it for the same purpose. They, they're they not cooking and serving and opening bottles of wine to show off what they know how to do. Mm-hmm. They're doing all of those things because they want you to leave a little happier than however you felt when you got there. And they want to remember you and they want you to feel like you belong there. And that's not diverse. Right. And I, and I feel like if I've, if I've upped my game of picking teams in any way, it's, it's recognizing that that thing, which we call having a high HQ, high hospitality quotient exists in human beings across the board, regardless of their background, regardless of their gender, uh, regardless of their race. And in fact, we do a better job when we are more diverse. And I know that that sounds like. Of a, a cliche but it, guess what it happens to be true and i think that patrons notice that as well and i think over time uh, i want to have I, I i want the feeling when i go to any of our restaurants when i look out into who's dining there i want that crowd to be diverse as well mm-hmm. and i think that when you staff your team in a monochromatic kind of way you get a monochromatic Guest base as well, and I don't find that very satisfying.
0: That's um, super interesting, and and I there's two parts to it that I want to ask you about. Um, I believe it's the case from the background of all these folks that they're all in-house, uh, so to speak. They're people that have been associated in some way, shape, or form. Not with, not
1: all of them. But not I, all of them. No, okay. as a matter of fact, um, one of the one of the things I think we really believe in. If if you ever baked bread before. You know that you start with a mother, the mother yeast. Yes, and that mother uh, has probably existed for a long, long time. And you take a little bit of that as starter for each loaf of bread. Well, that's exactly what we're doing here. There's, there's two or three people, including, for example, our our head accountant, okay, uh, who's who came here from New York City. So it's not only cooks, it's not only servers, it's the whole team. So there's some mother yeast. Yes, but there's also a lot of Fresh ingredients, because that's the way we get to grow. Okay. You know, Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer, and no means has all the answers. So we have, you know, we've got veterans from a lot of different companies, and we also thought it was important, especially coming to Washington D.C., to have local people who
0: know local people. Sure, sure, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, I I uh, was fortunate. I had um, Mark Rosati the culinary director of Shake Shack, on the show over the summer and was struck by his background and his kind of rise through the ranks. Um, yeah. no, he and, came from Gramercy Tavern. Exactly, yeah. right. And that's some of what I saw um, when, when quickly uh, paging through the list of folks. And it, I think, um, helps ensure, speaking of the Mother Yeast, that your principal – um the enlightened hospitality, and this is the first time I heard of h q because, as i you know did the research and and you know did the sort of deep deep dive into what your background and rise consisted of. the thing that kept jumping off the page at me is your own personal emotional i q your ability to um connect with other people and see um in other people what it is that's going to produce the thing you described a little bit ago, which is to leave a place feeling better than um, how they arrived. That's something that is both kind of, in my view, um, innate. You have an instinct for it, but also learned um, over time. So, if you don't mind, can we go backwards to to? Um, how yeah. You do you would? have a couch I can lay on while we do this? <laughs> no, that, no. Be... I'm just saying you're, you're you're using some terms, and we're talking about kind of an inth- an. Yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. Business. I'm going
1: to divert us for one second. Please and just get back to Mark Rosati, who's
0: I love Mark.
1: Sure. I love Mark. He he's he's such an outstanding uh, member of the Shake Shack team, but he also, I think, really embodies something that a lot of people don't. Maybe know about Shake Shack, which is that, uh, I think Shake Shack really helped to begin a whole new category of dining, which I call fine casual. We've, we all know what fast food is. It's not, no one's ever accused Shake Shack of being fast. We know what fast casual is, but I think fine casual is a new type of restaurant that was basically a mashup of fine dining Mm -hmm. and little known fact about Shake Shack. Well, Mark was the tavern chef at Gramercy Tavern, a Michelin starred restaurant. Um, Randy Garuti who's the CEO of Shake Shack, was the dr- director of operations for all of our fine dining restaurants before Shake Shack. Um, Jeff Amoscato, who's in charge of all of the product sourcing for Shake Shack, did that at the Modern, mm-hmm. um, another two Michelin starred restaurant. Right. And so what these guys have been able to do is to take the way we do business, including our culture of enlightened hospitality, and just join it with the systems necessary to replicate something that is not a full-service restaurant, but it is a full-hospitality restaurant. Right. You don't have to cut your hospitality. You also don't have to cut your quality just because you're doing something more quickly without waiters and reservations and, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, and and it was... Uh kind of profound in the research that I was doing the advent of Shake Shack, the timing and its proximity to Eleven Madison Park, and uh, in time and and physical space and the relationship that ended up between Eleven Madison Park and Shake Shack. I mean it it uh well we gave Shake Shack to
1: we gave the original Shake Shack to the owners of Eleven Madison Park. Right. Because I was, I was not proud of how long it was taking to pay back the investors uh, of 11 Madison Park. So we gave it to them. Um, I was one of them. So mm-hmm. it was enlightened self-interest as well. <laughs> but um, Shake Shack started making a lot more money than 11 Madison Park was. And I will tell you without any question that 11 Madison Park, which went on to get four New York Times stars yes. and three Michelin stars. Yes. and number one restaurant in the world from restaurant right. would not be in business had it not been for Shake Shack keeping it in
0: business at the, in, at in that the time stages. in the early stages. Right. And
1: then Shake Shack got bought out of 11 Madison park, which also made the owners very happy because they got, they
0: got more money. Yeah. Right. Um, I am interested. One of the, the, the other things I, we're going to go backwards. I'm gonna, I'm going to insist on it, but I do uh, one of the other things that sort of um, leapt out of, the um, background was the importance at a certain era in New York dining of um, the 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 principle that you've articulated of people feeling better when they leave than when they arrive and how impactful that was on the standing of the restaurants and and the ability to sort of build and replicate and pursue other interests blue smoke uh, north end i um uh, restaurants with different kind of concepts and, and cuisines, but because of that, the, the era in, in which, um, uh, Union Square Cafe and then Gramercy Tavern came to exist where the restaurant reviews were conducted by, you know, folks, uh, at the times and, and, you know, New York Magazine and the Post and, um, Zagat's was the, you know, the Bible. That was our
1: annual report card. Right. And that, that was the people's annual report card. Yes. And that was a big deal for us. Um, I used to, you know, even before there was the internet, I would just wait for the day that that dropped at Barnes and Noble, which was always, you know, early in November or sometime in November. And I would just hash my way right through that book and I would look. Uh, we, we would make charts and mm-hmm. we would look at all the top restaurants. And we would, we would figure out which restaurants had, had ticked up or down for food decor and service from the previous year, see how we had done relative to that. We would also then do silly things like, um, look at, uh, the uh, value per dollar. So for example, uh, in the Zagat survey, they would always tell you not only the, the rating for food decor and service, but also the average check. And so we would do a calculation to figure out which restaurants had gone up or down in terms of value as well, as well as how we had done. And then there was a category called um, New York's favorite restaurants. And that was the thing that probably gave me the biggest aha moment of my entire career, because every single year, no matter how well any of our restaurants were doing for food decor and service, they would always do better in the category called New York's favorite restaurants. And I, I couldn't figure out what that factor was and finally it hit me like a, a big pile of bricks which was that hospitality is not something zagat was asking about and that hospitality and service are completely different things no one had ever told me that before that service is a way to describe the technical delivery of the product but hospitality was how you felt while you were having the experience huh. and and so it explained to me why union square cafe in its early days could be New York's number one favorite restaurant. Gramercy Tavern could be New York's second favorite restaurant. At a time when restaurants below us in that category had even higher food scores or even higher service scores or even higher decor scores. And so that's when I started to really focus on – in fact, I I remember – I, I spoke to Tim Zagat one year and I said, you really need a fourth category. There should be an H along with the FDS. And he didn't agree with me on that, but um, that's fine. Yeah. But we really started to go to town saying, we have to get better in all of those things.
0: I, I'm, I'm, My mind is blown right now because what you just described is, you know, this concept that's in vogue, been in vogue the last couple of years, which is, is big data. This idea of taking information that's been collected by somebody, aggregated by somebody else, and then doing an intelligent, um, you know, sort of dive into what that data reflects and try and, and you know, glean some, some lessons out of it. You're building metrics from the, from the Zagats little red book that are, um, you know, directional for you. What was the what was the era? It was like in the, the um, mid nineties that you're doing. It was this? the late eighties, mid eight. early mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. Because there was no internet. That was
1: the only data that we had. Right. But, but the other thing is we got it annually, which was really important. So, for example, the, the the professional restaurant critics certainly had enormous influence. Sure, but they may not come back to re-review you for years. Right. And so you wouldn't necessarily. No, if you know, even though that was one subjective opinion, a restaurant critic, they were obviously reaching millions of people. But in order to get the aggregated view of many, many, many people on yeah. an annual basis, was was a gift, and it was like that's ridiculous to ignore that.
0: Yeah, sure, Um am I right? It, it's just the newspapers and their um, their critics and and Zagats, and that was it in terms that's of that's all we had. We didn't have.
1: You know, we didn't have any other. We didn't even know what a blog was back then. Um, never mind online user-generated reviews or anything like that.
0: Right, right. None of that existed. There was no infrastructure for it or anything. Taste buds. Quick break from this conversation with the incredible Danny Meyer. I want to talk to you about this great show that is returning to PBS, No Passport Required, with Marcus Samuelson. This season, No Passport Required, taking a new journey across the country to learn more about America's immigrant communities and their culinary traditions to discover how food connects us all, travel to six cities and explore the rich diversity of local vibrant communities from coast to coast from boston where portuguese chefs both continue and reinvent their cooking traditions to las vegas Where Chinese-American chefs are transforming their parents' dishes into something fresh and uniquely their own. Experience global food cuisine and how it's woven into American food and culture. With help from Chef Marcus Samuelson, we'll also get to know people and their stories as they cook up the bold, unique flavors of their homelands and show us how food can bring Americans together around the table. A vibrant portrait of America today. No Passport Required features musicians, poets, chefs, business owners, artists, community leaders, and home cooks who have enhanced the nation's culture and cuisine. Taste Buds, tune in or stream the new season of No Passport Required, Mondays at 9, 8 Central on PBS or on the PBS Video app. Now back to Danny Meyer. I want to go backwards because I there are many aspects of what we're talking about right now that I think will, will flow from how you found yourself in, in, in the restaurant industry in the first place. I saw a story um, about... A dinner that you had, a fateful dinner that you had with some family on the eve of of the LSAT. You were you were scheduled to take the LSAT exam to prepare for a law school uh, endeavor and a, law, a career in the law. And you had this this dinner. It, it's a little apocryphal, so I'm not you know I, I'm I'm s- somewhat skeptical. But but let me let you tell it. <laughs>
1: It's, it's not the least bit apocryphal. It, it <laughs> happened. No, I, I would have been the world's worst lawyer. <laughs> um, I, I had one of my favorite classes in high school was constitutional law. Okay. And I, for some reason, just loved those stories. Yes. I loved how they all ended up. And, and my teacher at some point said to me, uh, you know, I'm going to predict that one day you're going to be a Supreme Court justice. And it stuck with me. Sure. She couldn't have been wronger. <laughs> but <laughs> nice vote of confidence. But though. I, I did end up being a political science major in college. Mm-hmm. And, um, what do you do with a poli sci degree? And what do you do with that message that your high school teacher had said? You go into law. Right. And so I, I thought I should do that. And I, you know, I, I really loved issues and, uh, policy and, and politics. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. And yet I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer and I knew I'd be bad at it. And it's an tr- absolutely true story that the night before taking my LSATs, it was a Friday night. They were going to be early on a Saturday That's morning. That's true. That's
0: true. No, it's, I, rem- it's,
1: I did it. It's all true. I remember. It's all true. And um, I was just in a foul mood because of two things. My aunt and uncle and my grandmother were all drinking and loving their pasta and, and everything. And I couldn't have a sip because right. I had to be on the next morning. Indeed. So I was pissed off about that. <laughs> but I was also pissed off because I at some level knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. And it took my uncle that night um, to, to say, you're absolutely crazy. You're going to be dead a hell of a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Why would you do something that you don't want to do? And I said, cause I don't have any idea what else I could do. And it, on that night, he said to me incredulously, he said, you gotta be kidding me. All I've ever heard you talk about your whole life is restaurants and food. And it had never, ever, ever occurred to me that that was a legitimate career path. Right. And, and by the way, in 19, whatever it was, 80, it was probably 84. Mm-hmm. This was not an entrepreneurial pathway that a liberal arts poli sci degree evidently led to right and so today it is i I, one of the things i feel so proud about all these years of my career is that over that time not because of me but just because of the way the, the industry has evolved in this country is that the hospitality industry is no longer seen as a shady career for people who could not do anything else, but rather as a really valid career choice. And I I, I can't tell you how many times I had to kind of meekly apologize to my parents for wasting my fine education on a crappy profession and how many people I've hired early on, you know, especially in the eighties and nineties who would say, well, I'm doing this now, but what I really want to pursue is, a b c d and e sure now people are really proud to say this is what i want to do mm. so that story is as true as it can possibly be my uncle and aunt are still alive and oh if you want to you want to get the <laughs> truth
0: from them you'll be happy to connect you well speaking of connection help me connect the dots how do you go from from that aha moment that epiphany that wisdom um, that your uncle passed along to, you know, a, yeah. a brick and mortar restaurant.
1: <laughs> well, I was very very fortunate because at the time I had been the first job I had out of college, actually first job I had when I moved to New York. First job out of college, I was working for a politician who was running for president as an independent candidate. And oh, wow. Who was it? His name was John Anderson. Oh, okay, sure. And he was running against Jimmy Carter the incumbent and and Ronald Reagan. And he he got as many votes, I think, as practically any independent candidate. He got seven and a half percent of the vote. I learned a lot in that campaign. It was fan- I was living in Chicago. Um, I was also working on TV mm-hmm. uh, for a, a political commentator okay. named John Calloway. Um, and when I moved to New York, burned out from that whole political campaign. Because right. if you've ever worked on one. I've been once November 3rd or 4th or whatever it is, you, you, there, you cannot possibly work enough hours in the day. You cannot possibly raise enough dollars. And so you just, end burned out. Right. And so I had to, I had to do something different. So I got a job in New York city. I knew I wanted to live in New York, just try it for a year. That's what it was going to be. And then I was going to move back home to the Midwest. Um, and, um, the job I got was, uh, selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters
0: those Um, tags that are clipped on the clothing
1: so they were they were the white tags that clipped on the clothing but the company i went to work for um, which was newly a public company listed over the counter which is now now called nasdaq Mm -hmm. um, had just come up with a product which was instead of simply those white tags with pins yes aren't really great for clothing right had come up with a pressure sensitive label that had a printed circuit on it so that we could now sell into supermarkets and libraries and um drug stores, you know where you would have to because you can't put one of those pins in a jar of aspirin right right yeah so um i got the whole new york metropolitan area as well, as a territory on what basis on the basis that I had signed up to be a $16,500 <laughs> special projects manager and had shown myself to be willing to do anything. And then the New York salesman quit, went to the competition and I was the only guy standing. Incredible. So they gave me the territory and I became top salesman in the company for three or four consecutive years. And this- I was, I was making a fortune in commissions
0: in your 20s early 30s
1: yeah no i was probably 23 24 25 26 something like that no one to no one to support except myself yes and what i was doing with the money was putting it into the company stock and the stock went from something like 2 to 12 during the time i was there Whoa. so it was i see so the 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 night that we were talking about i actually had the luxury of saying I don't want to be stopping shoplifters for the rest of my life. Yes. Lucrative as it may be. What I really want to do is get a real life. And that's what led me to thinking about law. But that's what led to that night. And that's, and it's because I had, I had some money that I could spend, gave me the opportunity to take another high paying job. This one was $250 a week, um, (laughs) working in a New York, italian seafood restaurant oh
0: wow isn't that funny because that's
1: what we're we're doing here in washington right now is an italian seafood restaurant yes and the the restaurant was called pesca and i just wanted to get this out of my system Mm -hmm. so when i didn't go to law school a good friend of mine from trinity college um who was in a bank training program uh, i said you be the money guy i'll be the food guy let's let's open a restaurant he said i'm in and unfortunately, his dad caught wind of it, got furious with his son for going into that nasty business. Yeah, right. And my, in that era, my pal went off to Dartmouth business school, but he felt so bad about leaving me in the lurch that he connected me with his bank's only restaurant client because banks ran Whoa. the other way when they heard the word restaurant. Sure. And that was this, uh, this Italian seafood restaurant, Pesca. So I got a job there. Interview was great. The owner was sitting at the bar. And the interview consisted of me walking up and back down the bar, stopping in front of the owner, looking me up and down and saying, you'll do. That was my interview. <laughs> you'll do. Yeah, that well, was my that, interview. That,
0: that, that's the era. Well, that answers, though, part of, of the origin story um, that you just shared does answer one part that I've been curious about um, in in sort of just consuming the, 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 the Meyer universe, which is um you at a very early age are out connecting with other people and getting them to buy a thing that um they probably hadn't heard of before they understood the concept of it and they liked the idea of the, of the tech or whatever but um as as is evident from the the uh union square hospitality group and and shake shack it's you can only get so far with, you know, um, a good, a good product and, you know, uh, folks needs, you have to connect with people.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And, and that is, I, I've got to say the first day I became a salesman, my self identity was crushed because I always thought of salesmen. There was a character on this old TV show I used to watch called green acres named Mr. Haney. Who is a salesman and you know, you, it was like the guy with the gold tooth who was trying to sell you something you didn't really want.
0: Yes. And
1: I got to come up and on day one from my boss saying, if you have a bad self image for what you're doing, just get out of it immediately. What you need to truly believe is that your product is going to make someone else's life better. And if you believe that. That you're actually doing someone a favor by delivering to them something that maybe they knew they needed, maybe they didn't, but you're going to make their life better by virtue of this. You're going to, you're going to be great at it. And so I, I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. And it was a great experience because as a 20 something year old driving around in a powder blue Volkswagen Rabbit to some of the worst neighborhoods in New York, because that's where the shoplifting was the greatest. Right. And making cold calls to people and learning how to connect dots, learning how the guy who owns this women's dress store is first cousins with the guy that owns the, the health and beauty aid store down the street. Who's first cousins with the, the person right. who owns the first store That's down right. the street and getting to understand how it was those relationships that mattered as much or maybe more. Than the product itself. Right. And all that stuff was completely transferable to to owning a restaurant.
0: So people give you credit for innovation in having that mindset because it's always been at the forefront of your brand, your identity. Yeah,
1: I don't think it's the least bit innovative, though, because I (laughs) I think that that's what restaurateurs have always done. And I think that um, the greatest restaurants in the world historically, way before chefs were celebrities... It was, you went to a restaurant because the restaurateur knew you and you went to the restaurant that loved you the most. And, you know, chefs were, were the blue collar workers back in those days. Today they're, they're the stars. But I think that it's not at all innovative that a restaurant Mm -hmm. mental restaurateur mentality is how to run a restaurant.
0: I've seen, um, in, in some of the stories this um idea this ratio between um hospitality and um the sort of rest of the experience um and and that the hospitality sort of greatly exceeds i'll just you know it seems like it ex- exceeds the food it's more important the hospitality is more important than than the food um if i'm recalling the ratio correctly is that still sustainable in kind of this day and age where there's been this great democratization of, um, you know, f- food and the standards are high? Is that still, is that still work? More, more than ever, yeah.
1: more than ever. Look, Maya Angelou famously said something that sounded like long after people forget what you do and what you say, they're going to remember how you made them feel. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? That, that applies to restaurants long after you forget what you ate or drank. You're going to remember how we made you feel. And I think that it applies more than ever today because, and and by the way, the ratio you were talking about, we want to get 100 on our test. And the way we get as close to that is we, just like me as a student, I almost never got 100 on anything. (laughs) We almost never get 100 on our test. What are the
0: components? The components are these.
1: It's 49, the most points you can get for how well you do the thing you do. How good does the food taste? Is the temperature right in the restaurant? Is the table rocking or not? Did we get your party seated on time? Do we get the right drink to the right person? Right. All that stuff, all the technical aspects of delivering the product. Is the music too loud? All that stuff. The most points you can get for doing that perfectly, even if you could, would be 49, which is a failing grade. Right. So that leaves 51 points for hospitality, which is, oh, and by the way, How did we make you feel while we were doing all that stuff? And that explains why restaurants that may technically be even more proficient at decanting a bottle of wine or clearing a plate or whatever might not be your favorite. Because to be your favorite anything, you got to be really good at what you do and you got to be really good at how you make people feel. By the way, a 51 is also a failing grade. So if we're great at making you feel good, but... The food sucks or we make you wait too long. We're going to lose, we're going to lose us 49 points as well. So that's how we, that's how we view it. That's how we coach people on our team. That's how we hire people. We hire people who have innately the emotional skills to thrive at the hospitality because we don't know how to teach that. Right. We know how to celebrate it. We know how to recognize it, but we don't know how to teach someone who's not thoughtful or who's who doesn't have a good work ethic who's not empathetic we don't
0: we don't know how to teach you to otherwise be nice if you're just not a nice person but that was part of what we were sort of um touching on before we talked about the mother yeast um how do you know you it is kind of profound You, you you when you meet somebody and sit down with them and and interview them and talk to them for the first time you don't immediately get their emotional iq Right? You have to like have cues for it. So maybe you guys have gotten very smart over time and all of the the experiences that you've had. Well, so what we've, yeah. So we
1: have yet to come up with a mathematical test, but I'd like to because I think that if somebody at some point figured out how to measure IQ, intelligence quotient, which by the way, you also can't teach. Right. I, I, I have no idea what mine is, but I guarantee it's lower than yours is. I doubt that. But what I do know about an IQ is that. I I could read the encyclopedia tonight. My IQ is not going to change. Right, IQ is just a way to measure my ability to learn things. Well, an HQ is a way to describe the degree to which it makes me feel better when I make you feel better, right? And we know we we're pretty sure we know what the six emotional skills are that are always at a pretty high level with someone who's got a high HQ. By naming what they are and by teaching that especially to the people who interview for jobs in our company. What we're able to do is to teach you how to interview for those six emotional skills yeah. okay. and then how to actually um, in, a, in a performance review yeah. process. And we let people know right off the bat, when you get your performance review, we're mm-hmm. going to talk about how well you do the things technically that you're hired to do. But we're also going to talk about the degree to which you're bringing your emotional s- hospitality skills to the table.
0: Yes. Well, I, I, I um, am taken by some of the innovations that you have introduced to the restaurant experience um, over the last decade to 15 years, things like eliminating smoking at uh, Gar- Gramercy Tavern, or is it Union Square C- Cafe? Which all all, of, all them, of them. But it, of them. it
1: started at Union Square Cafe because yeah. it was 1990, and we didn't even have Gramercy Tavern yet.
0: Yeah, okay. So well in advance of any city, state, locality, thinking about outlawing, smoking in uh, public places, you were... But ahead of the curve we
1: were we were first in new york in all fairness i believe this had already happened in both aspen and beverly hills oh. at this point i just don't <laughs> want to i course. don't want to take credit for something <laughs> right. no but but what had happened was in uh, 1990 my father had passed away um, from lung cancer he, mm-hmm. he from everything i understand he had not been a smoker but i was angry and every single night uh, i would leave the restaurant smelling like an ashtray I remember one year having to change our entire ceiling because it had been stained by cigarette smoke. I remember, um, almost every night there would be an argument that I would have to mediate. If, if you remember the real old days, I, they had smoking on airplanes. And, I, I do. And if I, you were, if you were the last row of non smoking adjacent right. to the first row of smoking, you were pissed off. Right. And that's how it was in restaurants too. And so I just said, you know what? Try it, do it, yeah. and guess what? We only got busier as a result. And and it took another twelve years before Mayor Bloomberg put that into law in New York City, 2012. Yeah. Excuse me, 2002. So yeah, we like to we like to look for opportunities to say just because it's always been done a certain way, whoever wrote
0: the rule, it couldn't be done another way, right? Because uh, you you also sort of famously eliminated tipping um, across your establishments, and I'm sure that will be the same um, here at uh, Myalino. Well, moderate. we won't have to eliminate it because we're never going to have it. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's the benefit, <laughs> which of is that, great sorry, from scratch. That's right. And sort of two takeaways from that in the first place, um, you don't seem to have uh, encountered any diminution. In your retention rates, the folks that work for your businesses want to continue to work for your businesses, um, so they must feel like they're getting compensated adequately, and it doesn't seem like there's been any diminution in the enthusiasm to eat at your restaurants.
1: And and I think as importantly as all that, there not only has there been no diminution in the quality of the hospitality and the service, but in fact- all of our data points to the opposite, which is that, that, uh, the experience of dining with us has actually
0: gotten even better. So this is why I mentioned those two things and you just hit, hit right on it. How do you go about these days collecting feedback? Um, because there are so many disparate voices out there with varying levels of trust and, and, and sort of veracity and accuracy, um, the, the Zagats used to be the, the thing that owned the entire field and you could trust it and you knew their methods and how they collected information and you trusted that it was real people writing in real reviews. How do you do that now?
1: Well, interestingly, today, because of online reservation making, you get instant feedback. So, um, you know, whether it's Open Table or Resi or which, whichever reservation system people are using. All of those systems provide a a feedback mechanism that's almost instantaneous. And we actually get better, richer data than we ever got from tipping. And the reason is that you could on a given, first of all, our waiters pool their tips when, when we had tipping. And so if somebody didn't like their experience and left a lower tip, it never really showed up in terms of that server but more importantly more importantly people almost people who tip almost always tip the exact same amount mm-hmm. people are not great grading or they're not providing gradations yeah, if you're a 20% up. tipper you're my a 20% tipper That's
0: it. I'm, I'm that guy
1: yeah I do it in taxi cabs all the time right you know I hit the 20% number That's whether right. the guy was nice or not yes and um and so we were getting no feedback via tipping but you get an opportunity to look over time and you'll see that that certain servers are actually pleasing more people more of the time they deserve a raise mm-hmm. and so basically the responsibility to pay our servers is our responsibility it's not the responsibility of thousands of of patrons who don't really know what that server knows about wine or or, or for example if the food is slow why should the server be docked a tip when it could have been a problem in the kitchen? It probably sure. was. Do you think servers decide who they're going to hold up the food for because they don't think that person's going to give them a big tip? It's just—it's just a ludicrous system.
0: But how do you dis- discern? Like, what, what's the reservation data? Is front end data? It's not experiential data. No, it's experiential because okay. you don't
1: get the opportunity to send in your review until after you've had the experience. I see. And, and you,
0: I, I I'm, a, I never write reviews. Um, but there is a, a enough uh, of that feedback loop. Um, enough folks do it.
1: Oh my gosh! Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's very, very rich data. Much richer than we've ever had before.
0: Oh wow! Okay. And what what? About, and I would
1: encourage your listeners when you make a reservation online to do the exact same thing. But the other thing is people talk. And yes. The biggest compliment you can give a restaurant is to return to the restaurant. Right. Period. End of story. Right. And so if we had any one challenge when we first uh, eliminated tipping back in 2015 at the Modern, there were two camps of consumers. Because keep in mind, this is a deeply cultural thing in in this country. Yes. If you try to leave a tip in Japan, they will chase you out the door and throw the money back at you. (laughs) All right. But in this country… Tipping is you know, right up there with the Second Amendment, it's, it seems like, and, or the First Amendment. Um, you just don't, don't take that away. And the, the two camps that we encountered early on, but that's, it's completely gone away at this yes. point. There were a small number of people who said, how dare you take my right away to punish bad service? And to those people, I would say, um, what do you mean? And they'd say, well, if you take away the tip, I won't get good service. And I've, I'll say, well, have you ever given a low tip? Yeah, because I got bad service. And I, say, I guess the tipping system didn't prevent bad service, did it? Right. So uh-huh. it's it's completely false. But then there was a much, much greater number of people who were saying, don't take away my opportunity to thank someone for great service. Don't take away my opportunity to buy a better table in the restaurant. And to those people, I would say, trust me, the people who work in restaurants are people and they really really respond they they the the best people are happiest the currency is a compliment and if you just say that was amazing and we cannot wait to come back that is what counts the most it's my job as the owner of the restaurant to recognize great servers and to pay them Mm -hmm. appropriately and if i don't it's it's their free right to go work in another restaurant so we have to make the economics work for our team i have to tell you another thing though servers in a tipping house typically make up to 3 times as much as non-tipped employees okay i e the people cooking your food
0: oh oh i see right and
1: we saw that disparity as something that needed to be corrected or needed to at least be ameliorated right. to a point And I'm really, really proud that we have begun to close that gap. Okay. And as a result, we find that our cooks are staying longer and we're attracting better cooks. And guess what that translates to?
0: Better food for you. Right, right, right. And it it sounds somewhat simple when you you put it that way. And if I had my druthers, I'd like to reward the person doing the cooking or everybody, that the entire team. At least as much as I reward the server. Well, so our in, in our
1: system, which I'm I'm really really proud of, we have, you know, so many people who who hear about what we call hospitality included focus on the elimination of tips. But I think the other thing to focus on is what we're adding, which is adding to someone's professional and financial career path, including cooks. So we have what we call a revenue share model. We did not want to eliminate the incentive to be busier and to yeah. sell more food, right? We do want to eliminate an incentive to only be nice to someone in expectation of a tip. Yes. That's your job. Yes. So we we share a portion of our revenue every night not just with the servers but also with the cooks. And so on a really cranking Friday or Saturday night in a tip house, and I I've, I've lived this for years, the waiters Go into a back room and count their their tips. They don't want the cooks to see that because the cooks will feel bad about it. Right. And the cooks just perspire more. If you go to one of our restaurants, if you go to Mylene Omari here in Washington, on that cranking Friday, Saturday night, the cook's gonna make more money too. That's and, th- and the team spirit as a result is much more cohesive.
0: I have to tell you, it's it's thrilling. I'm I'm uh Dying to get over to to Miley and Omare now to see all of this. I've been to your restaurant in New York um, at various points in time and, and been to a lot of Shake Shacks. But, you know, but I want
1: you to and I'm, I'm really grateful to you for saying that. And I want you, in addition to seeing it, yeah, look at their eyes. You'll, you'll see it. But ask yourself how you feel. Ask yourself the minute you walk in, you can actually feel that human energy. And I want you to to put us to the test, talk to the staff, you know, ask, how does it feel to be working in this system? And I think you'll find that the esprit de corps is is quite outstanding.
0: I I can't wait. And we're not going to do any better than that for uh, the end of this conversation. (laughs) So thank you very, very much for for coming here. Thank you for bringing a restaurant to Washington, D.C. I really enjoyed the conversation and I uh, insist that we do it again. Thank you, Joe. There we have it. An incredible experience talking to Danny Meyer, hearing what he had to say, learning more about their enlightened hospitality. I am dying to get over to Maialino Mare. If you're in D.C., go check it out. If you're in New York, you have any one of his iconic restaurants to go visit. Um, And I don't think anybody needs any encouragement to go visit a Shake Shack. How about that coffee milkshake? My taste buds. We are on the gram at the House of Carbs. Hit us up if you have your own Danny Meyer experience that you want to share. We will post it. We have some stuff going up from my own experience, uh, some, some, some reference points from that chat with Danny. We are back next week by Hungry Homies. I think we're going to do a New Year's edition of Food News with the inimitable Juliet Littman until the end taste buds let's stay hungry out there